Blog Talk Radio.
John MacArthur, pastor, author, and the Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called Found God's Peace. It's all about helping you defeat anxiety and know true and lasting contentment. Request your free booklet by writing to peace at gty.org. That's P-E-A-C-E at gty.org. Offer good in North America and Europe through June of 2017. And now, unleashing God's truth, one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur. For now, I do want you to open your Bible to the first chapter of Galatians. We are working our way through Galatians. Now, we live in a day when culture does not tolerate absolute truth. If that is escaping anyone, you're not watching very carefully. This society in which we live today denies the existence of absolute truth. They deny it at all levels, but they deny it even at the level that renders it insanity. The typical or identifiable evidence of the insanity of our culture is to say that gender is fluid from day to day. That is the definition of insanity. That is a rebellion against all absolute truth. And not only does our culture despise absolute truth, but consequently they reject absolute authority. And so here we are, as the church of Jesus Christ, proclaiming absolute truth with absolute authority in the world around us. Never has the confrontation been more stark. Never has the gospel been more readily rejected. The generation that's developing in our culture wants nothing to do with fixed, absolute reality, and certainly nothing to do with absolute singular authority. And yet that is precisely what Christianity avers. That is exactly what we declare. Let me give you a statement that is the most offensive claim that can be made in the realm of religion. This is the most offensive claim that can be made in the realm of religion. Here it is. There is only one God, one Savior, one true religion, one holy book, one gospel, 
one way of salvation. All other religious claims are lies, deceptions, doctrines of Satan and demons that lead people to eternal hell, along with all the immoral, irreligious, atheistic, hedonistic, naturalistic unbelievers. That is the most offensive statement that I could come up with. It just happens to be the truth. It is the truth. That is the exclusive truth of Christianity. Even within the professing church, any deviation from the true gospel of grace is a damning lie to be cursed. We understand why the world rejects this. It is, however, a very sad day when people inside the church, even the evangelical church, begin to reject this. Over the last couple of weeks, you may have read a famous evangelical teacher and radio personality joined the Eastern Orthodox Church, went through a ceremony or ritual called chrismation, in which a rag supposedly infused with divine life was placed upon his head and transferred to him. This is an Eastern Orthodox ritual. What does the Eastern Orthodox Church believe about the gospel? Here is Decree 13 from their dogma. We believe a man to be not justified through faith alone, but through faith which works through love, that is to say, through faith and works. End quote. That's what Eastern Orthodoxy teaches. We are not justified by faith alone, but by faith and works. There are about 300 million people worldwide who are in the Eastern Orthodox Church. The sister church in the West is the Roman Catholic Church that has the exact same doctrine, and there are 1.3 billion people in the Roman Catholic Church worldwide. So 1.6 billion people call themselves Christians and believe in a salvation that is a combination of grace and works. That is false Christianity within true Christianity. That is false Christianity teaching a false gospel. It is not to be joined, it is to be cursed. And as I have said, getting the gospel right is the most important reality in the world because the true gospel is the only way of salvation. We're not surprised that the true gospel is under assault. We're not even surprised that it's under assault inside the church. No sooner were the apostles preaching the true gospel than it was assaulted in their day from inside the church. 
It was under attack. It was altered. It was corrupted by people who believed Jesus was the Messiah, believed in His death and resurrection, called themselves Christians, but added works to salvation. They trail the Apostle Paul and the other apostles through the New Testament, coming into the churches that Paul planted and adding works to the gospel that he preached, which was the gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. What they were adding was the works of Judaism. They were saying that a person could not be saved unless that person was circumcised and adhered to the Mosaic traditions. It came so fast on the heels of the apostles that Paul writes Galatians, the first of his 13 letters chronologically, the first of his 13 letters, and immediately in this, his first letter, attacks those who tamper with the gospel. In chapter 1, you'll remember verses 8 and 9, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. That's the word anathema. It means devoted to divine destruction. Paul wrote his first epistle to establish the true gospel and to denounce any other gospel. Again, the specific occasion that prompted the letter was the invasion of the Judaizers, the professing Christian Jews who actually had come from Jerusalem, but who believed that the law of Moses had to be adhered to in order for salvation to be received. They followed Paul into Galatia, and they began to Judaize the congregations that he established. Their whole purpose was to bring in a satanic, demonic, corrupt, false gospel. They claimed to be true Christian believers who were the true teachers, and Paul was the false teacher. Yes, they believed in Christ. Yes, they believed in His death and resurrection. They said they did. Yes, they even claimed there was grace in salvation, and faith played a role but works must be added. In so doing, Paul says in Galatians 3, they added a curse to people that would bring about the fury of God Himself who would curse that gospel and all its adherents. Now, they had not just attacked the gospel. In order to attack the gospel, they had to undermine the one who was preaching it. The people in Galatia, as in the other places where Paul went on his three missionary journeys, believed him to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. They believed he was a true teacher, that God had called him, that God had given him the truth, and that he was speaking for God. The false teachers knew that if the people continued to believe that he was a true apostle, they would hold on to his message. 
So it was important to denounce not only the message he preached, but the authority that he claimed. And so there was this relentless attack dogging the whole history of Paul's missionary life, an attack on his authority. And what they said was pretty basic. They said he came into the Gentile world and he wanted to please men. He's a man-pleaser. He wants to be popular. He wants to be accepted. He wants to be liked. He wants to be winsome. He wants to be attractive. So he stripped the gospel of the works that are necessary so as not to make it difficult for the Gentiles. He should, if he was telling the truth, have demanded that the Gentiles be circumcised and adhere to the Mosaic traditions. But he stripped that out in order to make the gospel easy and to please the Gentiles. The truth is, they were the people-pleasers. The Judaizers were the people-pleasers. They had added circumcision and the Mosaic tradition into the gospel so as not to be persecuted by the Jews. That's what Paul says in chapter 6, verse 12. They were the men-pleasers, but they were accusing Paul of that. So in this epistle, in chapters 3 and 4, he defends his gospel, but in chapters 1 and 2, he defends his apostleship. This is a defense of his apostolic credentials, which are essential to his authority. He speaks authoritatively because God speaks authoritatively. Now, what argument would they use against the authority of Paul? How would they discredit him? The argument very likely would go like this. We all know who the apostles were. We all know who the twelve apostles were. And we all know that the apostle Judas was a defector and a betrayer and uh, committed suicide and went to his own place. And we also know that in the first chapter of Acts it's recorded that Matthias was chosen by God to take his place. We know who the twelve are. They are the true apostles. But this man, this Saul, who is now called Paul, when the other apostles were clearly identified and when they were proclaiming the wonderful works of God on the day of Pentecost and when the church was born and then they were preaching the gospel everywhere, this man, Saul, was a non-believer. He was a fanatical, zealous Pharisee. He was a blasphemer of God and he was a persecutor of Christ and Christians. How is it that he can possibly claim to be an apostle when he is anything but? And so in chapter 1, starting in verse 10, and going all the way through chapter 2, he presents one of the most remarkable, powerful portions of New Testament Scripture in defense of his authority. Now you say, well, how does that relate to us today? Well, since he has written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit 13 letters in the New Testament, it's critical for us to understand that he speaks and writes with authority from God. 
Now let's read the testimony that he gives in chapter 1, starting at verse 10, where he begins by responding to the criticism that he was a man-pleaser. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ or a slave of Christ. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me or to me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, or Peter, stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which He once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Fascinating autobiographical account. And it kind of flies by, and you, you, you may be missing exactly what He's doing here, so I'm going to help you with that this week and next week. This is the defense of His apostolic authority so that his message is to be believed because he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. The question, of course, that the uh, false teachers were trying to raise in the minds of the people in the churches of Galatia was, is Paul's gospel the true gospel? Why would you believe him? He's not one of the twelve. He was a persecutor of the church. Why would you believe him? Maybe he made this up. Maybe he got it secondhand. He's, he's devised this thing because he doesn't want to make it difficult for him to win over the Gentiles. So he takes out all the works. He takes out the restraints of the Mosaic traditions, and he takes out circumcision and therefore strips the true gospel, they say. And by the way, where did he get this message? Maybe he got it from the apostles in Jerusalem, who, by the way, according to the Judaizers, had also rejected ancestral Mosaic traditions. Does he really have an opportunity and a right to speak for God? Or did he make it up, get it secondhand, or somehow did he get this from the apostles in Jerusalem who also have rejected circumcision and law? He has to defend himself. It's a critical, critical defense. They were the chosen vehicles to receive the truth of God. The apostles were. Now we have the apostles' doctrine, which was then declared orally, verbally. Now we have it written down. The Holy Spirit then inspired 
through that first century, the apostles and their associates to write down the truth of God in the New Testament books. But on the day of Pentecost and beyond, there were no books, and they were studying the apostles' doctrine. Is Paul's doctrine the apostles' doctrine, or is he inventing something as someone later claiming to be an apostle? He must defend his rights. The defense, in my mind, is just amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Now, back to the accusation. He's not a theologian. He's not an apostle. He's a politician. He's a politician. He's a compromiser. He's trying to be popular. He's on an ego trip. He's on a popularity binge. He wants to strip the requirements of Judaism out so that he can be accepted easily by the Gentiles. That's the accusation. So let's pick it up in verse 10. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? Now, why does he ask those two questions? Because of what he has just said. He has just said, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if anyone... Any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received. He is to be accursed. He has just pronounced a double curse on anyone who alters the gospel. Then in verse 10, the, the verse begins with the Greek word gar. It can mean for. It can mean because. Or it can be a strong exclamation and literally be translated, there. There. And that may be the best translation. Having just pronounced a double curse, he says, there. Am I now seeking the favor of men? Does that sound like a man pleaser? Do men pleasers go around pronouncing damnation on people's heads? Is that what a man pleaser does? Does that sound like a popularity seeker hurling anathemas in every direction for every person that deviates from the gospel? He says, if I didn't do that, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. To be a slave of Christ, you must pronounce curses on false gospels. To be a faithful slave of Christ requires that you pronounce curses on false gospels. I think we need a reminder of that today among preachers. He accepts his slavery, and with that slavery, he accepts the responsibility to curse false gospels. He does not seek the honor of men, and he has the marks to prove it. The end of chapter 6 and verse 17, the end of chapter 6, verse 17, he says, From now on, let no one cause trouble for me. Stop hassling me. He's back to the issue of his authority. Stop hassling me, for I bear on my body the scars of Jesus. Stop denouncing my 
apostolic authority. Stop calling me a man-pleaser. Back in verse 12 of chapter 6, he said, you Judaizers are the real man-pleasers. Stop. Because I bear the scars of my slavery to Christ. And some of those scars I received, many of those scars I received when I was in Galatia, in the city of Lystra, where I was stoned and left for dead. I see scars in my body every day that remind me that I am not a man-pleaser. I am a slave of Jesus Christ, and I have the scars to prove it. I've been beaten with whips. I've been beaten with rods. All those scars are not the scars of a man-pleaser. I've taken everything they've thrown at me, the Jews and the Gentiles. If all I wanted to do was to be admired by men and to be popular with men, would I have this many scars? So Paul answers his slanderers. I don't act like a people pleaser. I am Christ's slave. And what he said in 2 Corinthians 5.9 is what's behind this. My ambition, he says, is to be pleasing to Christ. Not to men, to Christ. And I bear the scars for that. I'm not a man pleaser. And that deals with that issue. And then immediately on the heels of that, he addresses the matter of where did he get his message. Look at verse 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, he's no man pleaser, but answers that, he's got scars to prove it, and he just pronounced damnation on anybody who alters the gospel. That's not what man pleasers do. And now he says, I am a true apostle. Based on what? On the fact that I received, I received the truth of the gospel from a revelation that came to me through Jesus Christ. How did the twelve apostles receive the gospel? From the lips of whom? Not from rabbis. No. They received everything over a period of three years from the lips of Jesus. Everything. That was unique to the apostles. They had direct revelation of the gospel. In fact, Jesus even said when they affirmed his Messiahship, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father who's in heaven. You didn't learn this from the people around you. You didn't learn this even from those who believe the truth about the Old Testament. This came directly from the Father through me to you. That is the unique revelation that comes to an apostle. But, but Paul, he comes way after that. Why should we believe he's an apostle? And his answer is because I received the gospel the exact same way that the twelve received it from the mouth of Jesus himself. I didn't get it 
in Jerusalem. I didn't get it secondhand. It didn't come from believers wandering around or living in Damascus. This came to me from Jesus Christ Himself. I would have you know, Gnorizo, I am now disclosing to you. I am now revealing to you. And he's saying it, it's a solemn, strong term like, let me make this absolutely clear. Brethren, a little tenderness moderates his fury here. The gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. It doesn't come from man. It's not a human development. It's not devised by men. It's not authored by men. It's not from men as to its invention. Then in verse 12, neither did I receive it from men. It is not a doctrine developed by men, and it isn't even a doctrine handed to me by men. I received it as a revelation of Jesus Christ. Wow, what a statement. What a claim. A supernatural revelation exactly as the other apostles had received the gospel. Sure, he knew the facts of Jesus' life. He knew the claims of Jesus. That was the basis of his persecution. But, but that was a bare knowledge in the midst of his ignorance and darkness. He had no supernatural understanding of the gospel. But on the Damascus Road, when the light from heaven suddenly descended, engulfed him, slammed him to the ground, and blinded him, he heard, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, everything changed. He saw Christ, the risen Christ. And he saw Him five more times in his life. He saw the risen Christ. He saw the victor. And he knew that he was full of mercy and full of grace. And the light broke on his darkness and the veil over his eyes was gone and he discarded all of his traditional religion and he says to the Philippians, it is excrement. He received the gospel by direct revelation from Jesus himself. Three days of blindness and Jesus is tutoring him by the Holy Spirit. No human source. Now, this is an open rebuke of the Judaizers because all their message came from men. You must understand that. It is such an important point. Judaism at the time of Paul, at the time of the New Testament as today, gave very little attention to the Scripture. The Scripture is a relic like it is in Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. The Scripture is a relic. To Judaism, the Old Testament was a relic that the rabbis had twisted and perverted and overruled with massive, massive piles of tradition. Some of you remember Fiddler on the Roof. Tradition, tradition, tradition. They learned it all from men. It was all developed by men. As in the Catholic Church, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, men in religious garb 
sit in judgment on the Scripture. And so it was in Judaism. Paul says, I did not get my gospel like you have taken in your traditional Judaism. Matthew 15, 6, he says, you've exchanged, you've exchanged your traditions for the truth of God. I received my gospel exactly the way the other apostles received it from the very mouth of Jesus. Now, he's going to support that. Starting in verse 13, he's going to support that. And he's going to support it three ways. Pre-conversion, conversion, conversion, post-conversion. He's going to show us that he did receive his gospel from Jesus directly. It's evident in his pre-conversion. It's evident from his conversion and what happened after his conversion. And we'll maybe look at the first two or partway through the second, leave the third for next time. This is autobiographical. This is really important. First, Paul turns to his pre-conversion. Notice what he says. Verse 13. You have heard of my former manner of life. So he goes back. My former manner of life. You've heard of it. In Judaism. Two things marked my former manner of life. One, I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Two, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Now, a simple way to understand this is, I was going full blast in the opposite direction from the gospel. I saw it as blasphemy, and I believed it was my responsibility to God to imprison and kill Christians. At the same time that I was denouncing and fighting against Christianity, I was advancing in Judaism. He is going full bore into his Judaism. Paul describes his state in Judaism. He's a fanatic. He's a zealot. He's passionate. He's over the top. He's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He's a legalist at every single level. He says, doesn't that tell you that I did not receive my gospel from men? My early education is proof I never had the gospel handed down to me by men. I was brought up in the rigid school of ritualism, legalism, Phariseeism, in direct opposition to the liberty of gospel grace. You have heard this. You know this to be true of my former life. That as far as Judaism is concerned, I was steeped in it. I persecuted the church. I tried to destroy it. I literally tried to waste it. Men, women, I bound in chains, put them in prison. And then what he actually did, very amazing, he urged them to blaspheme so that he would have reason to punish them. And when they would blaspheme, 
they would recite the gospel. It was for that blasphemy that they were imprisoned and killed. Yes, he heard the gospel. He heard it from the lips of those he imprisoned. He heard it from the lips of those he led to death. The reason he was a persecutor was because he heard the gospel, but heard it as blasphemy. I persecuted the church, continuous form verb. Secondly, I was advancing in Judaism. He was so extreme into traditional Judaism that he went beyond his contemporaries. In Acts 22, 4, as he gives his testimony, he said, I persecuted this way, Christ being the way, the truth, and life. Christianity became known as the way. So I was persecuted this way to the death, binding, putting both men and women into prison. In the 26th chapter of the book of Acts, interesting verse, verse 11, I, I commented on a moment ago, and as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme, force them to confess Christ. And when they did, he says, I was furiously enraged at them. I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. That's what got me to Damascus. Notice in verse 14, I was advancing, literally in the Greek, that's chopping. That's chopping. That's a verb that describes somebody with a machete in his hand going through the jungle, hacking my way through the jungle, chopping ahead, beating out a path, hacking down every obstacle in the way of the advance of Judaism. And I was hacking down the Christians that I saw standing in the way of the advance of Judaism. I was way beyond the other countrymen of mine. Now tell me, if I was more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions than anyone else, how, how in a moment of time did I stop and become a preacher of Jesus Christ and the gospel. That can't come from men. I was hell-bent headlong in one direction at full speed. And such progress in a young rabbi was aided and abetted by the best of teachers available, Gamaliel, outstripping Jewish contemporaries in his devotion to tradition. Mosaic law is not in view, but tradition, halakha, the body of Jewish oral law that surrounded the Torah and pretty much obscured it. I was a fanatic. I was a legalist, bigot, ritualist, persecutor, hater of Jesus, hater of the gospel. How could I ever have changed so fast so that in hours Three days, I'm preaching Jesus is the Son of God and proving it. What would he use to prove it? The Old Testament and the life of Jesus, his works and words. The gospel had no attraction to him. He wasn't seeking it. A man in that mental and emotional state is in no mood to change his mind 
or be changed by men. He'd heard all that the Christians had to say. They had worked on him, I'm sure. But only God could change his heart. It had to be a revelation from God. That's pre-conversion. Evidence that he didn't get his gospel from man. Secondly, speaks of his conversion. What happened at his conversion? Look at verse 15. But when God... <laughs> that, that's the initiation, right? This is sovereign. Sovereign grace, sovereign power. But when God... Who had set me apart even from my mother's womb? Whoa. God had predetermined the salvation of this man? Yes, God predetermines the salvation of every person. When a man is going headlong in one direction and suddenly reverses and stops and goes the absolute opposite direction, there has to be a divine explanation. God saved him. God broke into his darkness, transformed his life, this is the miracle of his conversion, initiated by God because he was chosen by God. He was set apart even from his mother's womb. And what that means is at the very moment of his conception in the womb of his mother, God's purposes for him began. And God called me. That's an effectual call to salvation on the Damascus Road through his grace. And it didn't stop there. The God who set me apart in my mother's womb, the God who called me through his grace on the Damascus Road, was pleased to reveal His Son to me. Why? So that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. This is, this is the, the work of God. God chooses. God regenerates through the effectual call by grace. God reveals His Son so that faith is born and attached to the Son of God. And then He becomes a preacher of the one he persecuted. Look at my conversion. This wasn't a work of men. This wasn't a work of men. My pre-conversion state proves that I didn't, I didn't receive this from men. My conversion is all about God. What am I doing on the Damascus Road? I've got papers from the high priest. I'm headed to Damascus for the purpose of imprisoning believers in Jesus. I'm not some second-hand apostle. Nobody gave me the message. Jesus showed up on the Damascus Road. You say, well, he doesn't do that for us. No, because we're not apostles. But he does do that internally, right? It's the same miracle. Stops us dead in our sinful tracks and reverses us, doesn't he? That's what salvation is. Saul, 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 Saul. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you persecuted. And I'm now calling you to preach my name to the Gentiles. So he says in 1 Corinthians 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. I love that opening statement in verse 15. But when God end of the verse, was pleased. When God was pleased, He called me. 
It is in the purpose of God that He will, at His own time, when it pleases Him, call His elect to Himself with an effectual call that takes them out of the darkness into the light. And it's through grace. It's His pleasure to do that. Whatever pleases the Lord is what He does. When it pleased the Lord. The Lord who had set me apart from my mother's womb, chosen me, began to work on me when I was conceived in my mother's womb. Amazing. Same is said of John the Baptist in Luke 1. Same is said of Messiah in Isaiah 49. Same is said of Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1. Chosen before they were ever born to be proclaimers of the true God. Acts 9, Paul was chosen. Acts 13, he was set apart. He was marked off before he was born. He had nothing to do with it. And it wasn't brought about by men. It was done by God. God called him. God gave him life. And he responded. Acts 26, 19, he says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly Vision. The grace that called him revealed Christ to him. The grace that called and revealed Christ to him produced obedience in him, a willing obedience. He, here's the key phrase, revealed his son to me. He revealed his son to me. Three days of blindness. He was receiving Revelation concerning Christ from Jesus Christ. For three days, Jesus mentored him. And then he came out and preached that Jesus is the Son of God and proved it. How could he have proved it so fast? Because he was a very knowledgeable person about the Old Testament. And all the proof was there You can't describe Paul from any human perspective. It's impossible. His pre-conversion, his conversion had to be dramatic acts of God. And they were. All salvation is like that. It's not all physically, outwardly, circumstantially so dramatic. But the internal miracle is this dramatic. You're rescued from the kingdom of darkness in a moment and placed into the kingdom of God's dear Son, given a new nature. There's only one thing that can do that, and that is the true gospel. The true gospel. Now, Paul received this on the Damascus Road, and there was no man, there was no preacher. But after that, after the final apostle... That's not the norm. That's not the norm. Romans, Paul writes this. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on one of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. 
For the apostles, it was direct revelation from the lips of Christ. For us and for the rest of history, it falls to the preacher. And we're all witnesses and we're all proclaimers of the gospel. But it doesn't take a Damascus road. Because even through a humble preacher such as we are, a humble witness such as we are, God constantly does the exact same miracle of transformation. You're proof of it. There's one other feature in his autobiography, and that's what happened after his conversion, and we'll look at that next time. Father, we thank you for this testimony to the beloved Paul. He has been such a part of my life for so long. His story in the book of Acts, his autobiographical sections in his epistles, his theology, his understanding of the church, all the incredible riches that come pouring through his ministry, both in his preaching and missionary effort in the book of Acts and in his powerful theological treatises in his epistles, practical instruction, all of it has had massive influence on my own life and the lives of all of us. We thank you for what you did in that man, that man of whom false teachers said his presence was unimpressive and his speech was contemptible. But he said... I am not, even though I am unworthy, I am not less than the other apostles because I received the gospel right from the lips of Jesus. We thank you that you, blessed Holy Spirit, inspired the apostles and those with them to write all of it down. And now we have the one book, the single authority, and the one non-negotiable, unalterable gospel. Lord, we are, we are a hostility, an irritation. We are an enemy to the culture that wants to silence us because we proclaim that there is one God, one Savior, one true religion, one holy book, one gospel, one way of salvation, and all other religious claims are lies. That is the truth. Thank you for bringing us to the truth and equipping us to proclaim it. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website, gty.org. 
And for details about the Masters University, where John serves as president, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to you reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Carbon-14 in fossils? This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to God's Word and the Gospel. Many people claim that the earth can't be just thousands of years old like the Bible teaches. And the number one reason? Carbon-14 dating supposedly gives old ages. Well, carbon-14 doesn't last long. It's only used to date things that are thousands of years old. Anything older shouldn't have any carbon-14 in it. So imagine scientists' surprise when they discovered carbon-14 in fossils that were thought to be millions of years old. If these fossils really were as old as secular geologists think, they shouldn't find any carbon-14 in them. Perhaps these fossils aren't millions of years old. When you start with the Bible's history in Genesis, this makes sense. We live in a young universe. Visit our faith-affirming website at AnswersRadio.com to discover about more evidence that supports the Bible's account of history. You'll be encouraged at AnswersRadio.com. In his righteousness alone, all 
I died to self. I've been raised to new life, just like Jesus died and was put in the ground and raised up on the third day. That's who I am, and I'm willing to pay the price for it. And that was always done, always done immediately. Then the person, because, again, this, this is not spelled out explicitly in the Bible. Baptism was, was kind of the entrance into the fellowship. It was the entrance into the church. Then you would take the Lord's Supper. And that's the pattern that we see in the New Testament. So with that being said, is it required today? And I don't think that we can say it's required, that you get baptized before the Lord's Supper. I don't think that, that we can say it like that. Would I strongly encourage it? Yes. Would I, if I were running a church, stop laughing? I would suggest we put this into our bylaws, that this, that this church practice is going to be this. Would I state that this is a sin if you do this? I, I, don't, I don't think we can go that far. And so I would make it a matter of church polity, but I, I wouldn't make it a matter of sin or not sinning. Now, having said all of that, may I ask you a question? Have you been baptized? Have you repented and put your trust in Jesus Christ? Then you need to get baptized. Well, we don't do it that often in our church. Uh, you better talk to your pastor about it. And, and, and I would suggest you say, I want to follow the pattern of the New Testament saints. They got saved. They got baptized. No dilly-dallying. Not waiting till next summer when it's a little bit warmer, cooler, the lake, the jacuzzis, or whatever. I need to get baptized. I need to get baptized. I want to be obedient now. I think that should be the heart of the new convert. And I don't think we're stressing that as much as we should be in evangelicalism. I think we are woefully short of the emphasis that we see in the New Testament. That we should be telling people, okay, you claim now to be a Christian. Now you need to get baptized. I, I still hold to this. I do not have biblical support for this. But the question would be, why did God institute this? sacrament. Why Why this ordinance? Why, why this thing? First of all, God very graciously gives us tactile Christian experiences. Lord's Supper, we eat, we drink, and then he also gives us a water ceremony, something physical we participate in or we watch. And so to these people who are like, well, you know, it's just all talking at the church. It's No, 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 not in Christianity. Lord's Supper, it's a participatory event. That does affect the senses, not in a mystical way, but just simply because we're using our senses. We eat and we drink, and we immerse somebody in water. Why don't we stress that more? I, I think that, that we're failing to remember that I think, I think, did I mention I think that baptism is a rather silly thing for a human to do? It is a foolish thing for somebody to do. Why would God initiate that? What is foolishness to the world? The gospel. What's the gospel? Jesus died for sinners, rose from the grave. What are you picturing when you get baptized? Jesus dying and rising from the grave, dying to self, new life in Christ. And so that is foolishness to the world. And I think that it is God's brilliant way of, of, I think there's some separation of wheat and chaff. The new believer goes, oh, that's kind of silly. I'm embarrassed about that. 
Well, that could be a sign that you're not saved. No, it, not definitively. It could be a sign that you're not saved because it's a foolish act to do. And a lot of people will never do it because it's just too silly looking. Because they don't realize it could be an education issue also. It could be a lack of salvation. It could be a lack of education. I didn't understand. I didn't realize that that's the importance of baptism. I, I didn't know that that's what I was picturing. I didn't know that this was an entrance into the fellowship of believers. I didn't know this is something we should probably do before taking the Lord's Supper. Now I do, so get on it. If you haven't been baptized, find your pastor and express to him you have a zeal to be obedient before the sun goes down. It does not need to be a formal ceremony. The Ethiopian eunuch didn't say to, to Philip, now I gotta get in touch with some of my relatives. I'm, I'm thinking maybe the prince of Ethiopia might even show up and he'll hear the gospel. Besides, not a lot of water around here, so maybe next spring after the rains in Ethiopia, would you be willing to come and do? No, it was immediate. Furthermore, I would suggest to you, again, I would not make a law, but what is normative? There can be exceptions when you don't have a pastor, you're between churches and you're hearing my voice, or you, you're, you're, you're in a wonky church but you're just enduring because that's the best there is at the moment and you don't want to be, I understand that. But as a rule, it should be your pastor who does it, as a rule. Can it be apparent? Sure, I wouldn't make a fuss over that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even sure the most conservative pastors do. I think they allow for that type of thing. But I think the rule should be that the pastor does it. Why? Well, this is a church event. We all watch it together. We all witness it together. As I stated, I think it is the physical, if you will, initiation right into the church and who's the shepherd of that church the under shepherd the pastor and so i think that's the normative way to get it done but it doesn't have to be having said all of that is it required that you get baptized before the lord's supper sure would encourage it a lot strongly but i wouldn't call you a reprobate heretic if you have not done that now if you persist in not doing that, I would ask you, why don't you want to get baptized? Check your heart on this issue. You have now heard clearly the importance and the imperative of baptism. And your response should be, that's it. I'm going to get her done. That's it. I'm going to be obedient. Lord Jesus, you, you endured shame for me. Getting baptized, if that is what you demand of me, you say that I need to do that, then I am going to do that, recognizing it does not get me saved, but it is a sign that I have been saved by you. So I'm going to go call my pastor, find some water, and get dunked. You know, the way the Bible demands you do it. And if and if and you persist in taking Lord's Supper without getting baptized, I, I would encourage you to do some soul work and ask yourself, why? What is the hesitation? Is it an education issue? Not anymore. Could it be a salvation issue? Uh, I might use that as a catalyst to examine myself because it is a command. I like it or not. This is Wretched Radio. Thanks for listening to the Wretched Segment du Jour. If you'd like more Wretched, you can listen to the most current stream for free at wretched.tv slash listen, or you can become a club member and listen to our entire archive. Wretched, reaching the lost, equipping the saints, and strengthening the local church.
First John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. God has revealed his truth through his prophets and apostles who gave us the Bible. It is by that word we test all other words. Here are four kinds of false prophecies to look out for. The first is bonkers, random made-up nonsense, like when Jennifer LeClaire wrote about a squid spirit. There's no such sneaky squid spirit stalking saints in scripture. A second kind of false prophecy is the blandishment, empty promises that stir up false hopes. While you were worshiping, God just changed your whole financial situation. I don't know who that's for, but I'm rejoicing that's the kind of stuff psychics and fortune tellers do. It's not of God. A third false prophecy is bleary, just vague predictions. This is something the Holy Spirit has spoken to us. And so the word of the Lord for 2017 is the breakthrough year. Very exciting. That could mean literally anything. The fourth false prophecy is busted. Very specific predictions that are total failures. The Spirit tells me, Fidel Castro will die. In the then you can combine all four and you have a prophecy bomb. Now, I don't know what's going to happen on September 23rd, 2017. But whatever it is, it's going to be something big for the nation of Israel. In Deuteronomy it says, how do we know the Lord is not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, it's not from God. And the penalty for false prophets is death when we understand the text. That is from... W-W-U-T-T, where we understand tips. Um, yeah, that's the last part of it for the people's prophecies is a uh, partial word that that was in Old Testament. We don't do that anymore. <laughs> it's just telling how serious it was, so that a false prophet would be stoned to death, or some, I think it's stoned to death. Um, thanks for listening to Truthfully Told Radio, and we do another one from, and we understand the text. Here we go, here on Truthfully Told Radio. and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. That's something to keep in mind anytime someone says that God told them something. Everything we could ever want to hear God say has already been said in the Bible. God spoke through his prophets who gave us the Old Testament, and in these last days he has spoken through his Son, Jesus Christ, whose apostles gave us the New Testament. Now, the Bible is not just an old book of what God said in the past. When we read the book of Hebrews, the writer quotes the Old Testament as something God is saying to us right now. We read in Hebrews 4.12 that the Word of God is living and active. God does speak to us. He speaks through the Scriptures. He does not speak to us through visions or inner voices. If a person says to you, God told me, what comes next should be a passage from the Bible. Otherwise, what they're claiming is that the subjective voice they heard in their head is equally as reliable and authoritative as the Bible. Proverbs 28.26 says, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. Proverbs 3.5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Psalm 119 says that God's word is firmly fixed. It is by his word we can test all other words. As Justin Peters has said, if you want to hear God speak to you, read the Bible. If you want to hear him speak to you out loud, read the Bible out loud. We hear the very word of God when we understand the text. I love to 
the story It will be my theme in glory To tell the old, old story Of Jesus and His love
But at the same time, but behind that, you've got to communicate the need to pray for this unconverted husband because the issue here is, you know, we love Daddy, but he needs Jesus Christ. And while he may resist the wife's pleas, I think that the pleas of the children and the prayers of the children are pretty powerful influences. Whether you are a saved wife with an unsaved husband or vice versa, First Peter makes it clear, be the best spouse you can be to adorn the gospel and pray like a nobody's business because God has written many wonderful stories of unequally yoked marriages becoming equally yoked. If you do not know how to help somebody who is struggling with emotional issues due to infertility, sexual abuse, miscarriage, self-harm, you will if you get tried by biblical counseling, too. Talk about drive by biblical counseling, too. It's a DVD, I think it's a DVD or MP3. They have a wretched TV, wretched.tv. And now, let's see. I'm going to do a song by Go Fish. This one is called My God here on Trippy Tory. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big and so strong and so
that was Gotta Move, and that was from Go Fish, the website is gofishguys.com, G-O-F-I-S-H, G-U-I-S dot C-O, gofishguys.com. Here's another one from Wretched before we go. It's, uh, so the college student asked, why are there so many Christians who don't act like Christians? And here is Todd Friel's response here on Truvitoria. This might come as a surprise to you. Most likely you grew up in some sort of a church as a child. Jesus talked about wheat and tares. He talked about wise virgins and foolish virgins. He talked about good fish and rotten fish. He was alluding to a problem that exists inside of the church. There are true converts and there are false converts. And those who leave were never amongst us in the first place. And here's why I'm here today. I hope that kind of answered it. I'm here today because I know statistically that 60 to 80% of y'all that are gathered here right now questioning things right now, or you've completely abandoned the faith, or you have found yourself living in a lifestyle of sin that is causing you to feel very, very guilty and unclean, and you just hope your folks won't find out vacation. If you are here today and you are not living like a Christian, it is a telltale sign you're not a Christian. First John 3, 8, 9, if you keep on sinning, we all sin, but this is an attitude that says, this morning I sin. You wake up, you plot sin, you carry it out, and then you wake up the next morning and you do it all over again. John says, you're of the devil. If that is describing you, I would suggest to you it is because you were never a true follower of Jesus Christ. When you were at home, you maybe went to youth group. You did the activities, lots of pizza parties, but you never got off your high horse. You never humbled yourself before the mighty hand of God and put your trust in Jesus Christ alone. So if that describes you and you are here today, let me just announce to you, based on the authority, not of me, but on God's word, it is not too late for you. Your sins can be forgiven. And you have done deeds you never imagined that you would perform. But you have. Jesus will forgive you. He is mighty to save. If you have had an abortion, I am here to tell you that you are not going to be the first woman or man involved in an abortion that God is not willing to forget if you will come to him on his terms. If you will repent and put your trust in Jesus, he'll forgive you. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Have you performed and committed sexual acts? Maybe. You're one of those guys, thanks for your patience, you're one of those guys who looks at pornography a lot. You're not beyond God's grace, but you must repent. Now, this does not mean you become perfect, but it means you no longer desire those things. You don't want those dirty things anymore. I want the one who died to save me from those dirty things. So you change your direction, not in perfection, but with a new attitude. We stumble. We fall. I still sin. Every professing Christian sins, but God grows us progressively in sanctification. And if you're not growing in sanctification, 
chances are very good you're not actually in Christ. You can be forgiven. I know, I know what type of people are here. You were maybe adopted, and you just don't think that God could actually love you. Maybe he could love those other people, but not me. I'm the orphan. He can love you because he does love you, and he will adopt you into his family. That is from Richard, and that was actually from Facebook page, and let's see, um, then it says Rescue the Perishing, I think it's, let me make sure it says, wretched.com, excuse me, wretched.tv slash, forward slash, rescue. And that's to help out with uh, preaching the gospel to people, especially the young people like that one out of college. And thanks for seeing Trippy Tall Radio. And our website is, excuse me, is www.truthbetoldradio.com, truthbetoldradio.com, and my personal website is smilesandstuff.com, S M I L E S A N D. S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M smilesandstuff.com has my testimony to how I became a Christian if you want to check that out. I think it's, in, I think it's like about me section. And before we go, i going to do the rest of these are answers in Genesis clips. Here we go. The God of Evolution? This is Ken Ham, author of the eye-opening book Six Days and Church Compromise. Many Christians believe in evolution but add God in as a part of the process. But this view totally misrepresents who God is. Scripture describes God as the all-powerful creator who made everything just by speaking. But evolution makes God simply the God of the gaps. He's just tacked onto a naturalistic process. This view also misrepresents God's character. Scripture says that God is perfect and all-powerful, but evolution is a wasteful process. And its main mechanism is death. Why would a loving creator use death to create life? And why would a loving God call such a creation very good? God didn't use evolution to create. To say he did misrepresents our creator. Want to know more about creation according to the Bible? Visit our website to learn much more at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped and encouraged at AnswersRadio.com. The Gospel begins in Genesis. This is Ken Ham, co-author of the new book, Flood of Evidence. Many people think it doesn't matter what you believe about the book of Genesis as long as you believe in Jesus. But it does matter because the gospel message begins in Genesis. You know, God originally created a perfect world, but Adam and Eve's sin brought death and suffering into creation. And death is a direct result of sin. That's why Jesus had to come to earth and die physically to take the penalty of death that we deserve upon himself. What you believe about Genesis matters. If Adam and Eve weren't real people, or if death wasn't really the penalty for sin, then the foundation of the gospel's gone. But the history in Genesis is true, so we can know the gospel is true. Want to know more about the history in the book of Genesis and the life-size Noah's Ark we've built? Visit our Bible-upholding website at AnswersRadio.com. AnswersRadio.com. 
Evolution and the Law of Biogenesis. This is Ken Ham, author, speaker and blogger on why we can trust the Bible. The Law of Biogenesis states that life can only come from other life. This scientific law is foundational to all biology. According to everything we've ever observed, life never comes from non-life, only from other life. But if evolution is true, life had to come from non-living chemicals. This means that the law of biogenesis had to have been broken sometime in the past. But we don't know of any process that could break this scientific law. When you start with the Bible, the law of biogenesis makes sense. What we see in science confirms God's word, not evolutionary ideas. The only time life ever came from non-life was when God created. Want to learn more about how science confirms the Bible's history? Visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. Sign up for daily insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com. What about plant death? This is Ken Ham, often a guest on radio and TV on the Bible's authority and reliability. Genesis teaches that God's creation was perfect, without any death or suffering. Death didn't come until after Adam and Eve sinned. But Genesis also tells us that people and animals were originally vegetarian. So how did plants die before the fall? Well, the Bible never describes plants as living or dying in the same way as humans and animals. For example, when an animal dies, the breath of life leaves it. But when a plant dies, it simply withers. Along with their other functions, plants were designed to serve as a food source in a perfect world. Before sin, there was no death. One day, when Jesus returns, the world will be like that once again. Want to discover more about the perfect pre-fall world? Visit our website to learn about the true origin of death and suffering and the fall at AnswersRadio.com. AnswersRadio.com We're going out with the B-I-B-L-E pronunciations. Until next time, bye for now.